You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Good morning, everybody. I am Andrew, and I'm excited to bring you part two of our teaching on Psalm 139. You missed last week, I unpacked some of the vengeance and hatred language in uh, verses 19 through 22. So if you're really into that and like, oh, what did I miss? Go back and listen to it because I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to touch that part today because I just wanted to give that. uh, I didn't want to gloss over that piece of the passage. But um, today I wanted to also lean into the part of the passage that we all know and love. So we're going to spend a good amount of time doing that today. Um, So Let's pray together as we turn our attention to the rest of Psalm 139. Lord, you have indeed searched us and you know us. Thank you for knowing us. Thank you for loving us. As we come to your word together, May the words of my mouth and the meditations and the thoughts of every one of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so this time we get to start at the beginning of the psalm, as opposed to jumping all the way to verse 19. We're going to start at the top. And at the top, I want to highlight for you how many times David addresses the Lord directly. So in the green text, which hopefully you can see there, I have highlighted every time David refers to the Lord directly, either by his name, the Lord, Yahweh, or pronoun. Right? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts. You discern my going out. You are familiar with all my ways. Next slide. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. A double there. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. It makes sense that the main character in a section of the Bible would be the Lord, right? Is that, is that like surprising anybody today? No, I don't think so. But there's another integral character in this section of the psalm as well, which I highlight with purple, I believe. Now, don't try to ascribe meaning to these colors. I just tried to provide some contrast here. Um, so, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts, discern my going out, my lying down, familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in, you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me. And for those keeping score at home, that is 12 mentions of you or the Lord and 13 mentions of I, me, or my. Okay? Now, it's not a contest, but... (laughs) But scholars like to call this an I-thou passage, a very sort of like common part of Scripture, common function of Scripture. It basically means it's a concentrated reflection on the interaction between an individual and the Lord, right? Which that's, this clearly is. This is about me and God. The language is intimate between you and I, David and the Lord, or when we read it, us and the Lord. And there's plenty of devotional material out there that applies a me and Jesus framework to just about everything, every passage of Scripture. And in the case of these verses, that, password, that, that um, framework is particularly appropriate. 
So these verses establish right at the front that this is going to be a deeply personal psalm. And it is. It is very personal. And surely, some of us have already in our lives established or experienced a deep personal connection to these words. Anybody have some connection to like some of these words in this psalm? Yeah. Last Sunday at our home group, we sat around a big table in Dave's backyard. And we read this psalm together. And after we read it, I asked if anybody in our group had history with this psalm. And I will give you now their answers, the deeply personal answers, beginning with Adam. No, Jessica, you're next. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) No, actually, actually, believe it or not, home group leaders, the question was met with crickets. Crickets. So home group leaders, it's not just you. It's me too. Probably never happens to any of y'all, just, just me. The, um, yeah, so don't be discouraged. But once we started unpacking the psalm, you know what was unearthed? History. Yeah. It turns out people do have history with this passage. It just was a bad question, you know? And, and, I'm, and I'll own that. Um, for many, like, history with this psalm boils down to an inherent discomfort with being known so very deeply, Right? It raises personal concerns, privacy concerns, and even philosophical concerns. In fact, I bet there are loads of college syllabi all over the world right now, uh, particularly at Christian colleges, that are having intentions to talk about the philosophical interactions between God's omniscience and our freedom, perhaps, right? Because it's an interesting question. Or a less technical question, if he knows, if he knows what we're going to think before we think it, if he knows what we're going to say before we say it, if he knows what we're going to do before we do it, how is free will a meaningful thing for us, right? That's the philosophical question, right? You may have wrestled with that in your life. But on a personal level, how do we operate in the world as people who are fully known by God? And that depends greatly on what we think about God or who we believe God to be. On one level of being known by God, there's an immense and wonderful comfort, but I think every single one of us has things in our heart or in our lives or in our souls that we would rather keep hidden. Yeah? You don't have to show hands, but I'm just letting you know. Yeah. We all have something that we'd rather keep hidden. But that's our stuff, right? The fact that we want to hide, that's our stuff. Our insecurities about being known completely are not really God's problems. It's, it's, it's kind of our problem. And it's no accident that one of the very first symptoms of sin entering the world was hiding from God, right? You remember Adam's line from Genesis 3? He says to, the God, he says to God, I heard you in the garden, but I was naked, so I hid. Shame, the urge to hide are some of the very first, most primal sin instincts that we have. It's not how we were created. We weren't created to hide or to be ashamed. Hiding is a symptom of our sin nature. No matter how wonderful these verses are about being known fully by God, they can make us uncomfortable. Why? Because we still have that kind of stuff in us. We still have some sin inside of us, right? So they make us a little discomfortable, discomfortable, uncomfortable. But the point of this passage is not to cause us fear and anxiety. Amen? 
The point is not to cause us fear and anxiety. David doesn't proclaim these words just to make us uncomfortable, but rather to make us grateful. It might take some inner work before we can find some real comfort rather than dread in being known by God, but it's worth the work. So again, in home group, Dave shared with us this quote from C.S. Lewis. I read in a periodical the other day. Anybody read periodicals? Some, some of you academics might, right? read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself it is not. I wish I was British so I could like really deliver this appropriately. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us from the weight of glory. So, a lot of our anxiety centers around what we think that God thinks of us. Whether we, whether we have an accurate reflection or not of what God thinks of us, but what we think God thinks of us is going to impact how we feel about being known by God. If I've been raised to believe that my God is going to get me for every mistake I make, that God is ready to pounce on all my bad choices and is just looking for any excuse to punish me, then these verses about being fully known by God are terrifying because I've been taught to be terrified by God, right? But what if I know God as loving and forgiving? What if I know him as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love? who he said he was to Moses all those centuries ago, who he revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ. Now, when we establish that, when we believe that, we can really establish an I-thou relationship. We can be ready to embrace the good news of this psalm, of being known. God's grace is, in, on some level, it's about relenting from punishing us, right? On some level, there's, a, there's an aspect of that to his grace. But it's so much more than that. But even if it was just him relenting, it would be good news. So let's, let's try reading the psalm this way. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me, and yet you don't destroy me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, and yet you don't destroy me. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways, and yet you haven't destroyed me yet. Before a word is on my you know it completely, and yet... I still have a tongue. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me, that powerful and mighty hand, and yet you do not destroy me. Such wonderful, such, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Right? Even just that, that little bit of mercy is enough to like, wow, that's kind of a shocking amount of good news. And to imagine it just keeps getting better. So, let's move to the next section, the next six verses. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. 
If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So a technical sort of theological word for those first six verses is it's, that it's a reflection on God's omniscience, right? About God knowing everything, especially everything about us. And a word to describe this section, verses 7 through 12, is omnipresence, right? That God is everywhere. Not only does he know everything, he is also everywhere. Everything. Verse 7 definitely has some you-can-run-but-you-can't-hide vibes, right? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If you go back to the one more slide earlier. Verse 7. Oh, backwards, sorry. Oh, just ruined the joke. Okay, so where can, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Yeah. It has you-can-run-but-you-can't-hide vibes, right? A little bit. It's a little scary, no matter how good we've been. But I have to assume that on some level, this verse is the inspiration for the quote that you're not going to be surprised to see now. We have had, we've had a, a needlepoint version of this quote that I don't know where it came from. Marcy's family somewhere down the line, I feel like. I don't think it's hanging in our house currently, but, you know, we exists. But now you can buy it anywhere, even Home Depot. And this is from the Home Depot website. Wash your hands and say your prayers. Jesus and germs are everywhere. some deep Home Depot theology right there. We love the way you work. All right. So once again, C.S. Lewis's quote is applicable. What we believe God thinks of us is going to greatly impact how we receive this scripture. If our shame or our belief that God is fundamentally against us dominates our conception of who God is, again, these words will bring terror. Right? Jesus will be like, uh, contagion that we can catch by not watching our hands correctly, right? Like that, that God is going to somehow infect us in a bad way. And given the way many were raised, the things we get caught and taught in church and at home, combined with the relentless nearness of this God that we have such harmful ideas about, it's no wonder that so many people need therapy, right? And I'm not saying that jokingly, for real. It, it's no wonder, <laughs> But again, I want to emphasize, this passage is not about outrunning the boogeyman. This passage is not about outrunning the boogeyman. It's about being held and loved and covered by God's grace in every single corner of the cosmos. <laughs> right? This is next level good news. Verse 8, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. In the depths. The Hebrew word behind depths is the, is the word Sheol, Sheol, a deep pit, a grave. It is the word that the Old Testament uses to talk about what we think of as hell, that pit, that lower place. It's sort of the only place in the whole universe that we generally think of God not being present, actually. Yeah? That's kind of that, that place that we think of where God might not be. But David is so, this is how good news this psalm is. David is so insistent on God's loving presence being everywhere that he even includes that place. Even if I go there, God will somehow find me. 
I'm not meaning that to be like a statement on salvation or anything like that. I'm just, David is so convinced that God is everywhere. You cannot outrun him anywhere. There's no way you can get away from him. It's not very different from Paul's words in Romans 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot get away from it, from that love. It's beautiful. It's good news. And the good news keeps rolling in. Verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. I would, I would dare say that there are no verses more important for advocacy for the rights of the unborn than these verses, right? You've probably heard them used in that context. I remember in public high school, volunteering the, to debate the legality of abortion in my government class. So if you heard last Sunday's sermon, you know that I memorized Psalm 139 when I was in eighth grade. And I don't recall being coached at all, but the only thing that made sense to me in that moment to bring to that, to that debate was these verses. And I need to emphasize that the only thing I brought to that debate were these verses. It was the alpha and the omega of my argument. It's all I had. My opponent asked me some really thoughtful questions about mother's health, sexual assault, incest, and I would really like to think that I listened, but because I hadn't thought about those factors in any meaningful way. But, but I was ready to say, and I still am ready to say, that every child, even in the womb, is precious, is known and is loved and is considered and should be considered and valued in any conversation. So even among politically differing followers of Jesus, I hope we can acknowledge that reality, right? It's beautiful, this image of just being knitted together fearfully and wonderfully. And I hope that we can also see these words as good news for our own lives, not just for somebody else, right? I hope that these are, good, these are really, really good news for us. And perhaps it's easier to think of those first two sections about being known about God being everywhere as good news if we can receive this section as good news of us. If we can envision God carefully, thoughtfully, lovingly, knitting us together in this loving, time-consuming way because knitting is not fast, right? And there were no sewing machines back in those days, and that's knitting anyway, whatever. Okay, so it's time-consuming. It might make a lot more sense that God doesn't want to punish us or destroy us for every wayward thought and deed if we understand how lovingly and carefully he created us. The internal logic of it wouldn't add up. Why would the Lord put so much care and love into creating us if his ultimate desire, if his heart's desire was to wreak havoc on us? 
And I, myself, have done some classic overthinking on this passage. In verse 16, when it says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Oh yeah, I wrestled with what that meant for my free will. I mean, on a philosophical, philosophical level, especially when I was a freshman in college, only one of you in the room, two of you in the room knew me then. I've been humbled since, I'll say that. Um, but if all the days of my life are written in a book before I live them, that sounds like classic determinism, which would mean I have no say in my own life story, right? And maybe I've been watching too many metaverse-based comic book films and TV shows. <laughs> maybe instead I could look at this with the same generous lens as the rest of the passage. What if instead of defaulting to wondering what God is trying to take away from me, instead I see it as yet another beautiful act of love? How about instead of saying, what is God trying to take away from me here? I read it the way God intended. What about the immense, glorious, wonderful gifts that he has given me that I don't deserve? <laughs> I just get them. Instead of looking at how this could potentially limit me and my freedom, perhaps I could see it as God infusing more meaning than I could comprehend into the life that he has given me. How he weaves my narrative into his narrative, his story of salvation that he's been telling since the dawn of time. He has woven me into that story. Made meaning out of it. What if in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter if I'm carving my own path. What matters most is that I am participating in the path that Christ has laid out for me. And if we were to name that particular path, the path that, that God is laying out for me, maybe we would call it the way everlasting. Verse 23. I know I talked about these two verses last week. And I fully did the comma thing this week too because it's hard to avoid it. Because I, I'm just not going to talk about verses 19 through 22. But anyway, verse 23. Search my heart. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The psalm, it takes us on a journey. In some ways, it ends where it began. But as with most great journeys, we are transformed along the way. So let's pay attention to specific words. The psalm began with, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Those were the words. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. That is a statement of fact, right? Sort of like somebody telling you on your birthday, it is your birthday. David states that he knows that the Lord has searched him and knows him. That is a beautiful fact. That's where we start in the psalm. But here at the end, he is now asking God to know him and search him and test try him even more. And that's not nothing. It's the one thing to passively acknowledge that the Lord is great and he does what he wants. But it is another thing to invite him into the depths of our lives, into our souls, to reveal things to us that are painful and broken and wayward, to invite his conviction and deep, deep knowledge, knowing that it is for our benefit and for our good. That his desire, his desire is for our benefit and our good. This idea is another one that's fleshed out in the New Testament in Paul's writings. Very famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And then he says this, for now 
We see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul speaks this in the context of this beautiful teaching about what it looks like to mature in love as followers of Jesus, to grow and mature in love. And Paul lands on this interaction between knowing and being known by God. What is it to know God? What is it to be known by God? Now, it's like seeing a reflection as in a mirror. And mirrors weren't quite as common in those days or as effective in those days, right? They were a lot blurrier than the ones that we have today. And that goes for the way we see ourselves. It's a little blurry. It goes for the way we see God. A little blurry. And the way we believe God sees us, right? I don't think any of us has the perfectly clear picture of that. It's an imperfect reflection. Some of it's grounded in reality, what we see. Some of it is grounded in scripture. Some of it is grounded in our own insecurities. Again, it's an imperfect reflection. But one day, one day we will see God face to face. Face to face. That's why we keep coming back to that benediction, that blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Because one day we will see him face to face. We will know him in some way approaching the way he knows us. Which, I don't know about you, but that's kind of incomprehensible to me. That we could know him in some way approaching how well he knows us. That this face-to-face intimacy will transcend, far transcend whatever we have with the Lord now. That's a pretty powerful thing and a beautiful thing. It's unfathomable. We are known. We are known by God. May we desire to be known. May we desire to be known more. May we go from, Lord, you have searched me and know me, to search me and know my heart. Try me, test my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. May that be our heart's desire to be known even more, to be guided, to be directed. May our knownness be a guiding light as we walk together in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for searching us and knowing us. For relenting and not destroying us. For offering your grace to us. For making it clear to us through sending Jesus that every incarnate breath of Jesus communicated the good news of salvation, of freedom, of forgiveness and healing and grace. A story that still lives in us that takes root in us, that confirms in us 
that we are both known and loved deeply by you. Lord, we thank you for cleansing us from sin. We take a moment to quietly confess to you, Lord, the ways that we have carved our own path, chosen our own way rather than the way everlasting. Whether they be habits and patterns that we keep coming back to, or one-time mistakes that continue to convict our heart, Lord, we confess to you. We confess all our sins to you. We lay them before you, Lord Jesus. And we repent. Lord, show us how to repent. Show us how to turn from our ways and find freedom from them. Show us how to not stay, stay locked in cycles, but to find freedom in you. And praise be to God that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and deliver us from all unrighteousness. That you do wash us clean, make us new again, so that we can come to your table without fear, but freely in the healing forgiveness and power of our Lord Jesus. We pray all this in the most gracious and loving name of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.